you know, getting into adulthood, there were many things as an adult that I was always putting off. And looking back, I got very lucky because there are some things that I put off that I shouldn't have. For example, creating life insurance, right? If something were to happen, I don't want the burden of a debt or a house or anything to fall on my partner or, or my kids even. So, you know, on that note, it's a relief to know that life insurance, especially term coverage exists, right? And it's surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones that you love? If you're asking yourself this question, you wanna make it easy for yourself to get it set up, check out Ladder. You know, they make it impressively fast and easy to get covered. Just in a few minutes with a phone or a laptop apply, they have smart algorithms that work so that you can find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees, and since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross that off your list just like I recently did. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly approved. Go to ladderlife.com slash SPI. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI. Once more, ladderlife.com slash SPI. So it's been over a year since the pandemic has hit. And as we all know, we've had to make a lot of different decisions during this time, especially when it comes to our businesses. And as we are starting to seemingly get out of the craziness and back into some sort of normalcy, what's gonna be interesting is that it's not gonna be the same normal, especially for many businesses. Many businesses, including the business of our special guest today, have made major shifts as a result of of the pandemic. And we've heard a lot of things of people, for example, who have a lot more remote workers now. But I mean, this this person who we brought on the show today has made some major business shifts, an online digital marketer, somebody who I'm really, really excited to bring back on the show. One of my best friends, Chris Ducker, my brother from another mother. I'm really excited to have him on because he, in fact, has made several major decisions that are, you know, on the surface, like, how did you make that decision? How did you know that that was the right decision? How are you going to plan for the future as a result of things that we can't really go back to, or at least not right now? So that's what we're gonna dive into today. This is an example of one of several people out there who have made major life and business changes and how we plan for the future through major crises like this. So I'm excited to share all the ins and outs and all the business changes that Chris has made. Let's hit the intro. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he thinks the Queen's Gambit is the best thing to ever happen on Netflix, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here. Welcome to session 485 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Really excited to bring one of my best friends back on the show, Chris Ducker. And this is important because you might have to make some major decisions and changes in your business, whether there's a crisis or not. It's gonna be a crisis or decision for you. And so we're gonna talk through the decision-making process, looking deep into somebody else's business and sort of their thought process, what was going through their mind and how we're gonna plan for the future. So hopefully you can take away many things from this episode. I know as the person who's conducted this interview, there's so many golden nuggets in this episode as Chris always brings. So let's just dive right in. Here he is, Chris Ducker from youpreneur.com. Chris, welcome back for, I don't know, the hundredth time here on the show. No, it's not been that much. No, you don't love me that much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always so grateful for you coming on the show because you have always so much to share. And it's been a while, I feel like. So we have a lot to cover, of course. And the last time we chatted, obviously, was before the pandemic. And I know you've made a lot of changes. Anyway, just how are things over there in the UK for you? Well, good, man. You know, I, you know, we were talking before you hit the record button. We're both blessed guys. We've got great wives and great kids. And we're lucky to live in, you know, nice, comfortable houses with, you know, some gardens to 
kind of get the kids to go wear themselves out and so they're not mm-hmm. driving us nuts all day long. You know, we're we're okay. You know, business-wise, it's been a bit of a challenge in a number of different ways, uh, like anybody else. The really big challenge, though, has been on the other side of the world. It's been in the Philippines uh, with our call center and with Virtual Starfinder over there. You know, we're still floating around sort of 350, 370 staff. We haven't lost any business, which is phenomenal. We're very, very lucky to be in that scenario in the service-related industry. But margins, profits have dropped quite considerably because of the, should we say, the the activities that we've had to incorporate into our day-to-day life as a, as a corporation to keep our people safe, to keep them coming to work and all that kind of stuff. So although revenue is still phenomenal, margins, not so. And that is where redundancy comes into play because where the call center gets into that sort of type of scenario and we'll get out of it, we'll survive it and we'll get out of it. And, you know, happy days again. Virtual Starfinder has grown more in the last year than it probably has done year on year for the last three or four years. That's now an 11-year-old business as well. And Youpreneur obviously is another redundancy built into the whole kind of overall group of companies. So blessed, dude. We're blessed to have all of that plugged in. Yeah, I almost forgot that you have that company in the Philippines and you had just recently moved, not recently, but, you know, several or a few years ago, you moved from the Philippines where you had easy control over that company. You were there, you know, a few times a week going in through the office saying hello to people. And now you're still managing that company, owning that company, but now you're not in the same country. How are you actually managing that company from remote like that? I mean, that's a huge company. That's people in person. How are you doing that? Dude, honestly, you know, I wasn't personally all that involved in that business for the last few years of even living in the Philippines. You know, when the pandemic hit, my big joke was that I've been socially distancing and isolating, you know, for like a (laughs) decade already. (laughs) So, you know, it's different to the point where I can't go in. You know what I miss about it more than anything? I miss going in and just seeing my people, seeing my, my stuff. Like I miss... I miss Mercia. I miss my executive assistant. She's been with me for so many years. She's like a daughter, like a you know an unadopted daughter to me almost. I miss seeing my management team. I miss walking around the floor and seeing all these people that I get to say, you know, I'm helping them with their own careers and their aspirations and things. I miss the people more so than the office and that sort of type of thing. But in terms of like, managing it, not much has changed, bro. You know, we get a weekly report from my GM on site. He is still based. He was an American, still based there full time. I do a monthly call with the entire management team, which is now at about 20 or so people. And then I do a bi-weekly 20-minute Zoom catch-up with Jerry, who, who runs the virtual Starfinder team for me. Other than that, Everything else is in Asana and Slack. That's cool. Even then, I try and avoid that stuff as much as I can. <laughs> you know, I think that speaks to the power of you know you having a team and people that you can yes. rely on, which you've yes. built over time. Which I know that you are the one of a few who have helped me and inspired me earlier on to build my team and have others that I can have support from and trust. AKA, you know, SPI Media right now. 
a lot of things are happening without me having to have a direct sort of line into those things. And I can take more of a director role like you have with your Philippines business so that you can focus on other things. And that was something that I had to learn about and adapt to for where I was in my business. Now, I know your business outside of the Philippines with Youpreneur and you have your event, the Youpreneur Summit, which has been affected by the pandemic and some other things. Let's go down the line on like each of those parts of your business because I know you've made specific and conscious decisions about how to adapt and be flexible during this time. So why don't we start with something that I know that you were very focused on right before we hit the pandemic, which was your mastermind, right? Something that you had envisioned bringing people together in person to help each other out and you've had to make big changes on that. Tell us what was planned and then how you've had to adapt. You know, I've been running masterminds. The first ever mastermind that I ran was in 2011. And it was like six people around a conference room, you know, like a hotel conference room table for the day. I charged $200. <laughs> Just saying it out loud now compared to like, you know, where we are now. And there was some, there was always something about bringing people together in person that I really, really, really enjoyed. And you and I have talked about this for hours over our, what, 11, 12 years of friendship, yeah, right? We've done it together with One Day Business Breakthrough a couple of times, but it was a little bit different. It wasn't, it's was like 50 people or 25 people in a room, but yeah, bringing people together is really important. And I knew that this was gonna be a big part of your business. Yep. And then everything kind of happened and you had to make some decisions. Yeah, and you know, so we did Upana Summit, inaugural event was in 2017, November, 2017. Did it again 2018, did it again 2019. And at 2019, based off of feedback directly from the attendees of those first couple of years, we launched from the stage the Youpreneur Incubator Coaching and Mastermind Program. This was their opportunity to become part of a, you know, a, a very intimate community of people to learn more directly from me and from you know my very smart friends like yourself you're guesting this month as part of our mastermind and you know a whole bunch of other stuff as well but i wanted at least for the first year or two i wanted to do it in person even though everybody i spoke to said dude you're going to be like closing the door on so much opportunity from like you know the united states and canada and australia and all over europe da, 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 da. do you really want to do it like in person in the uk like that's leave money on the table, ultimately. So it was UK only to start? It was based in the UK, but we did have a whole bunch of people coming in from Europe as well. So they travel in. Who doesn't want to come to London for a few days? It's the best city in the world, right? It's beautiful. So, <laughs> so I was there recently. I know you were. So, so we said, we'll do it in person. So we launch it. Our target was 50 people. So we can get 50 people to sign up for this thing. That would be incredible for the first year. We had almost 70 people sign up. And so we're over the moon. And this is November 2019. January 2020 is our first mastermind. We do, you know, a quarterly mastermind every 90 days, meet in person, you know, plan deep, go through, you know, like one big strategy that everybody has to implement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We do the, the, the January mastermind. Amy Landino flies in. She's our special guest speaker and everybody loves it. It's great. And then pandemic hits, like weeks before we're due to do our quarter two in April. So we're like, well, clearly we can't do this in person in April. And like, you know, yourself, you, know, you started the income stream, 
a lot of other people kind of doing things that they wouldn't have usually do because of the pandemic. We looked at it as an opportunity. Okay, well, look, ultimately, we were gonna we were gonna go virtual with this in some capacity at some point in the next year or two. This is our chance to try it out and see what that would feel like. We did not think going into April last year that we would turn it into a virtual, you know, coaching and mastermind program immediately. We didn't know that was going to happen. We thought we do April and we're back in London in July for the next one. And then the one after that is, you know, the day before the summit, right? That kind of thing. And so we went virtual with it. Everybody loved it. Some people even said that it was better than doing it in person because you had the opportunity to kind of just, you know, check out if you wanted to and kind of just walk away from the computer for a bit. Can't really do that in an in-person scenario. Some people said that they actually met more people through our little mini breakouts than they would have done through the breaks themselves in person at an in-person event. So all of the feedback was pretty much 100% positive. But again, we didn't think that we would only be doing it just that, you know, we thought we'd only been doing it once, not, you know, this was going to be right. quote unquote, and I hate using this term now. And then come back in person. The new normal, right. Right, right, right. So we thought, great, awesome. That's that's fantastic. Let's rock it out. See you guys in London in July. And then kind of, you know, May comes around, end of May, beginning of June, it's clear that this is not going to happen. And then the really big elephant in the room for us as a business was, holy moly, what are we going to do about our conference? Because we had, you know, it was relatively simple to pivot the incubator program to an online program. It was because we were planning to do that at some point anyway. So now we're kind of forced into doing that, but to the point where we embrace it because it was going to be what we were going to do People loved it. We just tell them outright, we're swapping to virtual. If you guys want a refund, that's all good. We'll give you a refund, partial refund for the rest of the year. Nobody wanted a refund. Nope, I'm in it for the year. I want to stick around. Great. But the big one was the event, bro, because you and I both know I love holding events. Yeah. And I let that get the, the best of me. I think not only headspace-wise, mental bandwidth-wise, but also emotionally as well, because I'm invested emotionally in my events. Right. I, I do want to get to Youpreneur Summit and how you've dealt with that and the feelings that you were feeling at that time. But I want to go back to when the pandemic hit after the first round of your incubator. You make it sound like it was like immediately you and your team were like, hey, this is great. We can go online now. Was there not any sense of, oh man, like this changes everything? And what were those meetings like? What was discussed? before making that transition to online, there's like, it sounds like it worked out for sure. But were there any like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen in any scrambling that happened in the beginning? (laughs) Trust me, man, there was plenty of scrambling. Okay, that's what I want to know about. Yeah, 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 of course you do. That's because that's who you are. So the big thing was not necessarily at that early point, April, May, it wasn't necessarily we don't get to do this in person now. The big thing was that I'm not the best with tech, as you well know, right? And I didn't want the quality. This was the really big thing. I didn't want the quality of that overall experience to be 
anything but what everybody expected that they would get when they signed up and, and invested in themselves for the program, right? And so I'm, you know, I'm like, what do I do? I, I, you know, I can't have anybody come to my house to set this stuff up. You know, what am I going to do? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was you and it was Luria over at Live Streaming Pros and a couple of other folks that I kind of lent on and said like, what kind of camera do I get? What kind of lens do I get? What kind of mics do I get? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, thinking back, I was already ahead of the curve a little with the Rodecaster Pro, which you set up for me in my office when you were visiting yeah, in us. Person. Yeah. yeah. In, what was it, like July or, or August, right? 2019. August mm-hmm. So you helped me that kind of get that set up. But then we're like, well, you know, that was for me, bro. Honestly, that was the biggest scary part of it all was all the tech side of things and the, you know, Zoom and breakout rooms and how, because it's easy when you're on stage and you've got 10 tables and there's six people at every table. It's easy to say, right, take, everybody's on the same. Stay on the same table. We're going to do 30 minutes hot seats each, and we'll take a break after two, and then we'll come back and do it. It's easy when you're in person. Yeah. And the great thing about doing in-person events from a presenter perspective, as you well know, if you're in an environment at a venue who do this every single day for people across a variety of different industries, you know the AV team have got your back, Right. They're going to make sure your mic is sounding great. They're going to make sure the stage presence is fantastic. They're going to make sure the right music is played when you rock up. They're going to make sure that the camera work that the camera guy is doing for the recordings is going to be top notch. We can't do that in a virtual setting, particularly when you're kind of doing it all in your own. I didn't have the AV. I was the AV guy (laughs) all of a sudden. You know, so the the tech stuff was the big scrambling. And I'm lucky to have a team of incredible staff to to kind of handle the rest of the stuff but it was kind of scary at first but it it wasn't it was just more the fear of the unknown yeah it wasn't really like super uncomfortable it was just like i don't want to look like an idiot and i don't want to not show up for the folks that are paying for sure i mean that that's a huge burden having not ever really done that before to push that forward thinking you have a year to plan this and get all the tech ready and stuff and now it's right. a couple months no, we had literally like two weeks. We were like, two weeks. We're not doing it in person. You know, cancel your hotel rooms, do what you need to do kind of thing. You know, it's crazy. So what are the things that were done in the online scenario to ensure that it still had that incredible experience that one might have in person? I know you thought a lot about that. What are some of those things? So we did a couple of things. First and foremost, in January, we gave everybody this really cool leather portfolio zippable binder you actually sent it to them yeah no no i mean we we gave it to everybody in january in person oh in person right, right, right. yeah with inserts for that particular quarterly mastermind so what we did was like well instead of just having these designed by our designer and giving them the pdf versions first things first for the rest of the year we're sending these things out in the mail no matter where they are all over the uk we had about 65 percent uk the rest of it was europe so but not only do we send out the worksheets, we send out, you know, tea bags, like have your tea break on us and like a door hanger that said, go away, I'm hustling or go away, I'm working on my business. <laughs> That's you know, that idea. kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And so we did all these things and people loved it, dude. They absolutely loved it. And stickers and silly photos from, you know, like the summit that, you know, hopefully try and bring memories back to people and stuff like that. And it really worked. 
it really works. So that was the first thing. The second thing from an online perspective was that, you know, I'm known for kind of like, you know, the music and the breakout kind of dance breaks and all that kind of stuff. So we did that as well. We had music playing when people turned up and music at the break times and not, not, you know, not boring, you know, yoga, think about your life music. Like, you know, we have Bruno Mars rocking and James Brown, all these kind of, and and then Urs would do, as you know, she's a yoga instructor. So like, you know, she would do, you know, two minute stretch breaks with people after their hot seats and all this kind of stuff. And it worked, bro. It really worked. And I think that and the combination of, you know, strong slides, making sure that visually our designer did what he needed to do to create the environment of, you know, this might be online, you know, we're not sitting on chairs in the same room, but this is still really high quality stuff that I'm getting here. And I'll be frank with you. I worked harder on my own content, my own coaching, my own strategies, my own training material last year than I ever have done as a coach, period, because I knew I needed to show up. The analogy I used actually at that first mastermind that we went virtual with in April was to use a Star Wars analogy, stop trying to be Luke Skywalker. Don't be the hero. Instead, turn yourself into Obi-Wan and be the guide guide your clients, guide your customers through this thing. Be the mind, you know, the mind of reason and the voice of reason. Don't be, you know, trying to be the hero and trying to look all cool and all that kind of stuff. Like show up for your people more than you ever have done before. And we added in like weekly breakout calls and office hour calls and a ton of stuff that they didn't invest in, ton of stuff that they didn't expect to get. And we added it all in because I had to be Obi-Wan, bro. I had to be Obi-Wan. Yeah, I like that. I think especially especially at that time to offer that advice to your clients or your members who have their clients of their own in a time when everybody's freaking out is really smart. Yeah, I did a YouTube video that was entitled Be Proactive, Not Reactive. I shared it into our private group and pretty much everybody shared it with their communities because it was a voice that needed to be heard at the time, you know? Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you for that insight on how you've managed the incubator. You had started to touch on Youpreneur Summit. Let's go there. So you know that you have to do something with this event because it's not going to go the way it was planned. What's going through your head? It was a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Even just talking about it just now. What was uh, the struggle? What was the uh, push and pull? Because I had made the decision prior to moving to the UK, which we did in you know 2018. Well, actually, we bought the place in early 2017. We moved mid 2018 to the UK. And prior to moving here back from the Philippines, I had made the decision that I was going to do way less traveling. And as you well know, I would come to the US three, four times a year when we, you know, first became buddies and, you know, we would hang out with each other in San Diego a lot, right? And then maybe the last four or five years has been like once a year, maybe twice a year on the on the off chance. And the whole thing in my mind to kind of like balance that as a guy who loves being around people that is very much an extrovert that wants to love on his people and provide value and all that kind of stuff. Like the balance was I get to do my own event in my hometown for 400 people in the Queen Elizabeth Conference Center. Are you serious? Like this is a dream come true. And we do it three years 
in a row and it sells out three years in a row. And, and you know what it's like, you got to build that momentum, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm in a position where we had like 140 or something tickets pre-sold for 2020. We usually went live with tickets because it's slow burner selling event tickets. Super early bird price, you'll always get a good number of people jump on to save a couple of hundred bucks or whatever it is. But we usually go, we usually go live with tickets around March. Pandemic was everything in March. We're not going to go live with tickets. No one's going to be buying tickets to a live event in March 2020, right? So we'll hold off for a month. End of April comes around. What are we going to do? Holy moly. Let's just, it's too uncertain. Let's hold off. Okay. May comes around. Now I'm in the hole with the venue because I've gone past the point of no return deposit-wise, right? So now I'm even more reluctant to cancel. And we're not talking like a ridiculous amount of money. It was like 20 grand. It wasn't a, it wasn't a stupid amount of money, but it ain't chump change either. 20,000 bucks is still a lot of cash, right? When you think about what you could do as a business with $20,000, right? For sure. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm in April. Now I'm in a May and I'm not going to have to call it because this is stupid. I need to make a decision now. And my issue was from a very, very selfish perspective, I didn't want to cancel it because I didn't want to not do the event for my own reasons, for the reasons inside of me, for the exact same reason that I started it in the first place. I want to bring my community. This is my community here, first and foremost. I want to bring them together. I want to rock out. I want to have some fun. I want to hang out with all my buddies, all the speakers and whatnot that come into town. And, you know, it's mid-November. It's Memorial Sunday weekend that we do it on. That way everybody goes out for a morning break and they get to see the queen go by in a car and all that kind of stuff. And it was all these things, all these things. It was an emotional roller coaster. You and I know. I mean, we you know, we talked about it so many times, right? Well, I had a lot of the same feelings with FlynnCon that I had. Of to course, make, you did. You know, very, very yeah. similar decisions and emotions for sure. Uh, especially having just finally run my first event the year prior, very successfully, having sold pre-sold a number of tickets, also being fifty k in the hole with the venue. So, what made you finally make your decision, and what was your decision? Well, you know, we looked at the numbers. I always say like, you know, men lie, women lie, children lie, but the numbers never lie. The numbers never lie. And as a business owner, you avoid your numbers or you ignore your numbers at your own financial peril, plain and simple. So we had to look at the numbers. And, you know, when you look at it, over the three years that we ran it, 47%, almost half of our attendees were from outside of the UK. So even if we were to put the event on, international travel is pretty much off. So that would mean we'd have to work twice, maybe three times, maybe four times as hard to make up that lack of, of, of international visitors, right? Secondly was also, if, if I'm to be honest, like I was worried about my own health. You know, I've, I've had asthma since my childhood. I'm classed here in the UK with the NHS as clinically vulnerable, which is why I got my first vaccine earlier than, you know, even some people twice my age. So you put all those things into play. The fact that, you know, there, there is a bigger picture here. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm also responsible for, you know, almost 400 other people's livelihoods on the other side of the world. I can't not take this seriously. And so we had to make the call and we canceled it. 
And it was tough. It was really tough. Without a doubt, the the absolute right thing to do. And we postponed it for this year as well, because it's still a, a level of uncertainty, even though things look like we're, you know, the, the, the smoke is starting to part a little bit. It's still, it's irresponsible to hold a large event in 2021, in my mind. If anybody tries to do it, then, you know, genuinely may, may God be with you in my mind, because I just look at it as just an unnecessary health risk, if nothing else, you know? Yeah. No, I agree. We did the made the same decisions for FlynnCon and that was tough, but it's definitely the right move. Yeah. And you crushed your first event, you know? It, it, that must have been hard. That being said, though, you had an incredible MC that first event as well. I don't even remember who that, that was. That definitely helped. I don't even remember who that was. It was you. <laughs> the guy was pretty... He was, <laughs> he was pretty forgettable, that guy, right? <laughs> uh, that, never. Uh, that was awesome. So uh, thanks for taking us into your mind with relation to that tough decision. But I think it obviously makes sense now looking back. But in the moment, it can be very difficult to make those kinds of decisions. And like you said, look at the numbers, get outside help and perspective. A lot of times our emotions can get in the way of making the right decision. And I think that also you know, trying to be proactive, even in a reactive situation is really important, like you said. Yeah. And I think also when you go through something like that, like I've been building businesses for 16 years now, there are several, half a dozen, you know, blips on that, that journey map. That was definitely a big one for us, mainly because of my own emotional element. I'll be the first to admit it. I wear my heart on my sleeve. You know what I mean? But once you go through these little blips and you look at it more from a productive perspective, a positive perspective, and that is, man, I learned a big lesson there. I shouldn't have led with my heart. I should have looked at the numbers a lot sooner on. I should have, you know, I read a 32-page medical report on COVID so I can get more, you know, more educated on this thing. I took it really seriously, but I took it seriously too maybe even three months, almost three months too late. If I'd have done it earlier, not only would I save some money, I would have saved a lot of sleepless nights and all that sort of stuff as well. But with that being said, it enabled me at the beginning of this year to make the call A, a lot sooner and B, a lot easier, which not only did it save me a ton of money, but it also saved me a ton of time. And that's your most valuable commodity as a business owner, right? So yeah. Make things easier this year, going through it last year. Simple as that. Nice. Thank you. Let's talk about one more thing that I know has changed. And this is an interesting one to me because you were literally in this office where I'm recording this right now, where the term youpreneur was born. Mm -hmm. We sort of were in the same room together and that term was coined and it became your membership, your community. Yep. Came later the youpreneur summit, but also this amazing group of people that you've had and have taught and have held accountable and have helped people get results with. And you decided this year to also make a change with relation to that. What what happened and, and why? Yeah. Again, we looked at the numbers. You know, the one thing last year, dude, is that, you know, Youpreneur started off in your office, like you say. I remember, dude, it's July 4. It's 4th of July. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what we were doing 4th of July in your backyard? Yeah, you knocked April in the head with a water balloon. I remember that. <laughs> Oh my God. Never forgive you for, for the record, for everybody tuning in, yes, I did pelt Pat's beautiful wife in the face with a water balloon. But let me tell you something. She didn't sit down on that. She came after me hardcore and got her revenge. Trust me on that. 
But yeah, an afternoon was when that term Upano was born. And initially, going back to you know what we were up to, we had already been running Tropical Think Tank for a couple of years, which was our intimate live event in the Philippines, which you came to in the first year. And again, it was all about community. It was all about community. And so when we launched that as a membership, I was kind of amazed, to be honest with you, at how quickly it took off. We had like 200 and something members in the first month join that thing. And it grew again in the second year. And then it kind of plateaued in the third year, 2018. It plateaued out a little bit. And then we did some promos and the numbers went back up again. And then it kind of plateaued again in 2019. And I was like, you know, you know, and then obviously prior to, to that, there wasn't a lot of these kind of online entrepreneurship type memberships out there. There were a certain amount, but there wasn't a lot. There's way more now, right? And that's why the business of you, that P2P element, that people-to-people element that I teach is even more so important and should be embraced today more so than ever before because people will join the community for the leaders, I believe, more so now than ever. And they'll stick around more so now for the leaders of that community as well. So when we kind of like first launched it, I was a little bit surprised at how quickly it grew. But then because we had that early growth, I was equally surprised that the numbers started dropping off and we couldn't get them back. And so middle of last year, we started really looking at things from a business angle. You know, the actual incubator had already gone virtual. So we knew that that was a big change we'd done. We weren't going to do the summit. So we had some extra time on our hands from a team perspective to be able to double down on the incubator experience as well as kind of look at the other areas in our business. So we spent time cleaning up our marketing funnels. We spent time, you know, developing new opt-ins and testing them from a lead gen perspective. And then we really started crunching the numbers inside of the academy. The numbers just backed it all up. People were not sticking around as long as they used to. We were on this, and this was the big thing. We as a team were on this consistent content hamster wheel of, you know, you charge every month, you got to show up every month. Yeah, for sure. And it was one of those things where it started to become a chore to create the content that we needed to create for our members. And the moment that that starts happening, for me personally, you've got to start looking up the reasons why you continue to do something. If something is a chore, if it's not fun, if, you, if it's not enjoyable, then there's a crack there. Something's broken there. And you've got to start looking at what it was. And yeah, we decided to ultimately survey our members and find out, and not only the members that were still current, but also our past members as well, and find out the reasons why did you cancel? What can we do to make it better? What did you think of the... Con- Dude, it was like a 25-question survey that we went into them with. We had about a 30% return rate, which I thought was very good, even including the folks that had canceled. Especially for a longer survey, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not part of the community, but they're still finding the 10, 15 minutes it took to like fill it out and get it back to us, which was awesome. And the one thing that really became very, very clear was that even with the newer members that had come on board, they turn up... You know, there's a great onboarding process that we fine-tuned beautifully over the four or five years or so. But what happened was 
they felt like there was a certain level of overwhelm. There was so much in there from the last five years. There was so much content that they could consume. Even though we had a roadmap in there in terms of what they should do first, what they should do next, where they should look to get in six months, nine months, that kind of thing. It was just a level of overwhelm and time that people were not really ultimately willing to invest in it. And that's one of the main reasons why they were dropping off or they weren't active in there anymore and they just carried on getting billed every month. And I don't want anybody to pay for something unless they're using it, you know, genuinely. That's such a common response to for, hey, why'd you leave our membership community? It's just overwhelm, right? So that if you have a membership of any kind, got to make it easy for people to come in there and understand what parts of it are useful. And you got to get it to a point where people can't help but think, wow, I wonder what life, like I can't imagine life without this. That's kind of the feeling that you want yep. versus like, exactly. why do I even have this at all? Yeah, absolutely. Like, why am I paying for this? Like I see it on my credit card statement. It's only 50 bucks a month, but hey, that's 50 bucks. That's a lot of Starbucks right there kind of thing, right? And so I think that the big thing for us was that, you know, once we got those survey results back and we really spent time as a team breaking them down and kind of really, I even got on the Zoom. I did like an open Zoom session for like two hours with the active members to figure out what we could do to quote unquote, try and save it. Like, even though they didn't know that we were in this mindset of, do we need to kind of swap things or change things or shut things down entirely? Like for them, it was all about just a discovery call and how we can make things better and, you know, serve them better, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, dude, I mean, it, it, you know, we talked about like not providing replays to live coaching calls. Like if you want it, you got to turn up live. Now we've got one less video going into the portal for those guys. One less thing to kind of, you know, contribute to that shiny object syndrome. One less thing for them to be less overwhelmed about, et cetera, et cetera. But everything just came back to wanting to provide a very simple, effective, time-saving way to be able to learn how to build and market and monetize a business based around your experience and your passion and your expertise. And so we started looking at the core content that had been in there since day one, which helped ultimately write the book, Rise of the Youpreneur, which helped me put together you know, the business of you keynote and all the rest of it. And we just went back to the core build market monetize framework that I developed as part of the initial launch all those years ago. And then we started building out like the really important lessons for each of those three modules. And before we knew what was happening, we had the course, 18 videos, an average of five to eight minutes per video, a 50 page workbook three modules, you know, two hours or so of content. And this will get you from A to, you know, not Z, but A to, you know, J, right? Yeah. It'll, it'll get you there. It's the foundational requirements for getting on the road of building the business of you. We package it as a course. We sell it as a one-time fee of $497. It's like a MBA in personal brand business and people have been loving it. So what we did is for anybody who was still an active member, we gave them free access to the course for life. 
cancel all their recurring payments. That's nice. And actually one week from now of of date of recording, April 8th recording, April 15th, the doors of the old membership close for good. And everybody's already in the course doing what they're doing inside of the course. And, you know, you know, they're watching because I see those video stats. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And the feedback that we've had is you make it easy for me to go through this content. I don't feel overwhelmed. And I don't feel like I've got to like a lot, a massive amount of time to be able to go through a lesson. Because when I open it up and I see the lessons nine minutes long, maybe 20 minutes with me doing a little homework in the workbook, I realize actually, you know, I could I could spend a morning a week, for four weeks in a row, and I'm done. I'm ready to roll. And people are just, the feedback's been actually, honestly, quite humbling, bro. That's cool, man. Because, yeah, we put a lot of work into it. Congratulations. That's a, that's a big decision too, because that's that's way different than what a membership is, right? Yes. Which, which has a community. So how are you, does the course still have a community component? Yes, there's a Facebook group. There's a Facebook group, yeah. The other thing was with the membership prior, as you well know, we had the private forum in there and it worked really well, really, really well at first for, for a couple of years. But then I felt like we were swimming up against the current because everybody else wanted a Facebook group. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to do Facebook, too many distractions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then eventually got to the point where the forum just wasn't working for us. So we went to the Facebook group thing. That's still there. People are still in there. When they buy the course, they get access to that group. And I think it's just the big difference is this. And understand something. When you close one book, you have to pick up another book and start reading immediately if you're a leader. You know, I often say like, if you're a leader, you've got to continue to learn in order to continue to lead. You have to. And so that's why we had this crossover of the membership wrapping up and the course already being live. And what that did was twofold. Number one, it was it was not an abrupt stop where everyone was like, whoa, 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 what's going on? What's happening? What's happening? Everybody knew what was going on. We communicated it in several emails and live videos, et cetera, et cetera. There was no big shock. It was, this is what's going to happen. This is how you're going to navigate it, et cetera, et cetera. No questions. Everybody knew what was going on. The other thing was, and this is a big one from a monetary perspective, and that is that when you're building a membership, and you know this now with with SPI Pro, when you're building a membership, there are two words that come to that type of business. And they're beautiful words from a business ownership perspective. Number one, recurring. You get recurring revenue every single month, every quarter, every year, no matter like however you're billing, right? So you get that recurring revenue. And secondly, you know, genuinely, it allows you to actually predict how your business is going to grow. It's predictable and it's recurring. So we knew that by shutting off everybody's recurring income, we as a business, we're going to take an initial hit because now we've got used to making X amount of money for charging those recurring memberships. If we just turn that off, you know, it's like, holy moly, where's that money gone? But the course is already live. We've already soft launched it. It's already selling. It's already in our autoresponder. We're already mentioning it on the podcast, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And because of that, we actually had like a, almost a month of like double the amount of revenue because 
we still had the membership going in for the last time and the core stuff coming in for the first time. And so, yeah, you know, I, th- I think in, t- in terms of making that pivot, I don't feel like the pandemic forced us to do it. We could have carried on, but I think what the pandemic did, it's provided us an opportunity to look at that side of our business much, much closer. And I think that as business owners, particularly when you're building in a number of different revenue sources into your business and that redundancy, you can get complacent. You can get, you know, you can start seeing that 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 revenue coming in every month and it's just it's a given that it's going to be there, but you don't look into how it's happening or why it's not growing because you're working on other things. The pandemic allowed us, it gave us the time, the breathing space to be able to look at that membership and what wasn't working. And I feel more confident about the course after a month of having it available than I did after five years of running the membership. Fact. In terms of the way it's going to serve our, our people. How long were people staying in the membership at the tail end there? Like how many months? That's a good question. In the tail end, an average of about six to seven months, which is not bad industry standard wise. But at first, first three years, dude, I think the average was like 18 months. So it it had diminished quite sincerely. Right, right. So the price point becomes something that sort of allows for several months just kind of in one full swoop in the beginning with a single time payment to sort of make up for that. That's cool. That's cool. I think that... Like you said, this is not something you were forced into, but the pandemic, I think, for everybody has allowed us to slow down, kind of zoom out a little bit and go, hey, what is going on here? When we come out of this, what do we want things to look like? And that's been true for our businesses. And I know that's been true for just our personal lives as well. You know, I've made decisions to travel less and do more things at home, even when we get out of this. So I do agree. I think, again, it's that what does this make possible question? now. And you've definitely uh, tackled that very well. Thank you, Chris, for letting us in on your brain and what's been going on over the last year and a half or so since the last time you were on. And I just appreciate it. So where, where should people go if they want to check out some of the things that you have going on, your course and summit when it eventually comes back? Like, where should people go? Yeah, I mean, everything kind of youpreneur wise lives over at youpreneur.com. If they want to check out the course, they just have to go to youpreneur.com forward slash academy. All the info is right there and they can buy in. There's no open and close scenario. It's open all the time. And yeah, just, you know, hit me up on the socials at Chris Ducker. Love to have a chat. Thank you, man. Appreciate you for coming on as always. Right back at you, bro. All right, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Ducker. Again, you can find him at youpreneur.com or his academy at youpreneur.com slash academy. If you want the show notes and resources for this episode, all you have to do is go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 485. And it'll be really exciting to get Chris back on in, I don't know, maybe another year. We'll see to see how things have gone since these major decisions. And I hope that you are able to better manage your decisions moving forward as a result of this as well. So thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate you. Thank you to everybody who's listening in. The comments have been so fantastic this year, especially with the follow-up episodes too coming Friday. So make sure if you haven't figured this out by now, every Friday we have a follow-up episode to the interview that we have on Wednesday and the follow-ups are on Friday where it's just you and me. We chat a little bit more deeply about specific things that happen and specific themes and topics that we cover on the interview. And I hope you'll join me this coming Friday or in the next episode for that. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Take care. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Sound design and editing by Paul Gregoris. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. 
Our series producer is David Grabowski, and our executive producer is Matt Gartland. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. After I was let go from my dream job in 2008, in addition to creating a product, I actually turned to affiliate marketing as a way to supplement my income. And little did I know, my affiliate income was actually gonna outgrow the income from the products that I created. You know, affiliate marketing is generating an income by recommending or offering other people or other companies' products to your audience, big or small. And you can do it all without turning to sleazy internet marketing tactics. I wanna teach you how to do the same thing. In my workshop happening on May 25th at 11 a.m. Pacific, It's called How to Monetize the Brand You've Built Without Being Salesy or Sleazy. You know, we get sold to all the time. It doesn't feel good, but you can do it in the right way, in the right way where you can actually get thanked for it. So I'm gonna be covering what makes for a strong affiliate marketing campaign, how to identify the right products to promote, and how to make the most of your existing campaigns if you are doing any already. How to make sure your audience buys through your link, how to promote your affiliate products for long-term passive income, almost a set it and forget it. It's not easy, but it can be made easier, and I wanna show you how to do that and it should be a part of your business, big or small. So to get started using ethical affiliate marketing tactics, sign up for free with the training on May 25th at 11 a.m. Pacific. Sign up now at smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. Once again, smartpassiveincome.com slash webinars. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI. And today, I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point. So I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray. And in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories. And I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Tonight, new concerns about COVID vaccines and teenagers. The CDC investigating a small number of adolescents who developed a heart condition after vaccination. Is there a connection? Why doctors say your teen should still get the shot. The mass shooting at a house party in New Jersey. Two killed, more than a dozen wounded, a hundred guests fleeing in fear. Witnesses say the shots came from the woods. Disaster in the mountains. 14 people killed in Italy after a cable car carrying tourists plummeted to the ground. One child survived, now fighting for his life. The mother of the six-year-old boy killed in a suspected road rage incident gives an emotional interview, her message to her son's killer. I want them to pay for what they've done. The class of COVID-19, we followed a dozen high school students through this tumultuous school year, the challenges they faced. Chaotic, stressful, relentless. And the lessons they learned. This is NBC Nightly News with Kate Snow. 
Good evening. For months, public health officials have been encouraging every American to sign up for a COVID vaccine. And tonight, there's visible progress. New Mexico today became the ninth state where more than 70 percent of adults have received one shot. More than 160 million Americans have received at least one dose. And COVID cases and deaths are at their lowest in nearly a year. But for parents considering whether to vaccinate teens, a CDC statement about an extremely rare condition may give them pause. But should it? We begin tonight with Blaine Alexander. With COVID vaccines now approved for those as young as age 12 and health officials urging parents to take advantage, tonight the CDC is looking into cases of a heart condition possibly linked to the vaccine in adolescence. In a statement this week, the agency notes relatively few reported cases of myocarditis, a condition that causes inflammation in the heart, noting they were found mostly in adolescents and young adults, more often in males and typically within four days of the second shot. The CDC notes they all appear to be mild cases with this important caveat, that the rates after vaccine have not differed from expected baseline rates. There's no evidence that this condition is linked to the vaccine at this time. And it's possible that these could be related to other uh, underlying causes, uh, other viral infections or other causes. Still, for some parents already hesitant to get their child vaccinated, it's not welcome news. Scary, you know, we don't know what could happen and how their bodies are going to adjust to it. A recent poll conducted before the CDC findings shows nearly a quarter of U.S. parents with children ages 12 through 15 will definitely not get their child vaccinated. Another 26 percent plan to wait and see. Bottom line, should parents be concerned about this? The risk of this condition, if it exists, is extremely low. I don't think there's anything to worry about right now. If I had a 12 to 15-year-old, I would vaccinate them now. And Blaine joins me now from CDC, from the CDC. Blaine, why do health officials say it's important to make this information public? Well, Kate, a big part of that is actually transparency, according to one expert that I spoke to. The CDC also wants doctors to watch for possible symptoms in young people. But again, it's very important to note that the CDC recommends that anybody age 12 or higher get vaccinated, and that guidance has not changed. All right, Blaine, thank you. A quiet New Jersey neighborhood is reeling tonight after a deadly mass shooting at a backyard party. And now police are looking for the killer. Lindsay Reiser reports from South Jersey. A manhunt underway tonight for the shooter after a celebration in Bridgeton, New Jersey, ended in bloodshed. 1029 East Commerce Street, a gunshot. You can see the aftermath of a night of terror flipped over tents and tables, debris scattered everywhere after gunshots sent hundreds of partygoers scrambling for safety. Somebody fired from the woods or came out of the woods and uh, it's very tragic and devastating for our whole community. 14 were wounded, two left dead. It's complete chaos. John Fuqua is an advocate who works with young people in the community. Many of his family members were at the party. 15-year-olds to 80-year-olds were having a good time. It was a 90 things party. Um, it wasn't a shooting gallery. Um, it wasn't a hunting exposition. Um, it was a party. No arrests have been made, and New Jersey State Police are still investigating what exactly happened. But some fear this may have been a targeted ambush. This was something set up. They trapped them in that yard. Bridgeton has struggled with increasing crime and poverty rates. Community leaders described last night's mass shooting as a setback. We've had a lot of um, violence in, in our community, a lot of um, fighting. 
and we're working so hard. That's the saddest thing. And Lindsay Reiser joins us now live from that scene. Lindsay, what do we know so far about the victims? Okay, we know that a 25-year-old woman and 30-year-old man both died at the scene. And the governor of New Jersey, who calls this mass shooting cowardly and despicable, will hold a press briefing tomorrow morning. Kate? All right, Lindsay, thank you. We are following breaking news from northern Italy tonight. A cable car that shuttles tourists and families to an amusement park in the Alps fell 60 feet today, crashing into the mountain below, killing all but one person on board. The lone survivor, a boy, now fighting for his life. Matt Bradley has late details. Tonight, tragedy in Italy after a cable car at a mountain resort plummeted, killing at least 14 people in Italy's northern Piedmont region. Rescuers struggled to reach the remote mountainside where the gondola fell. The only survivor, one child in serious condition, airlifted to a hospital in nearby Turin. The cable cars take tourists from the city of Stressa on the banks of Lake Maggiore to a theme park atop Mount Maggiore. The 20-minute ride offers stunning alpine views to as many as 40 tourists in each car. Officials say the accident is a terrible blow just as the country eases its COVID rules. These people thought they were going on a nice day out, the region's mayor says. Instead, it's been an awful disaster. The system was renovated only five years ago and had just reopened after COVID rules lifted. Italy's Alpine cable cars are normally safe. Today's tragedy was the worst accident since 1998, when a low-flying U.S. military jet cut through a ski lift in the Dolomite Mountains, killing 20 people. Now rescue workers saying tonight's death toll may climb even higher. Matt Bradley, NBC News. The White House late today speaking out about a disturbing rise in anti-Semitic violence in this country. One of the latest incidents happened last night in Brooklyn, New York. An official says a group was yelling free Palestine and harassing Jew Jewish people in front of a synagogue. Police say the same group is suspected of later attacking two Jewish teens. The White House says it's working alongside community organizations to condemn other recent attacks. There were rallies across the country today honoring George Floyd. The coming week marks one year since he was killed by a Minneapolis police officer. So tonight, we're starting a week-long series of reports about his death, the global protests it sparked, and just how much has changed since he's been gone. Shaquille Brewster reports. Tonight, the start of emotional commemorations to mark a year since George Floyd's death. He changed people's mindsets, like the world. Americans gathering nationwide for marches in New York. If we don't get no justice! To a rally in Minneapolis where he was murdered. In this moment, we understand as people, we deserve to live. George Floyd's death sparked sustained calls for police reform, including from President Biden asking Congress to pass the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act by this week. The bill stalled in bipartisan negotiations. It's absolutely necessary that we do something. But experts say changes are sweeping across the country at an impressive pace. At least 3,000 policing-related bills introduced in state legislatures, more than 30 states enacting new police oversight and reform laws. Common reforms including bans on chokeholds and neck restraints, updates to use of force and de-escalation policies, and new expanded body camera policies. But some lawmakers reacting in the opposite direction. Georgia now setting limits to police budget cuts. Changes also happening within individual departments. The Minneapolis Police Department now banning neck restraints and requiring officers to document and justify any time they unholster a weapon. What do you think of the changes we've seen in the past year? 
I, I don't think they're that's going to make the difference. The changes, the policy changes aren't going to make difference. We've changed policies for years, you know. What makes the difference? What is getting the getting to know your community. A year later, some unifying pleas for more change and more justice. And Shaq joins me now from that march in Minneapolis. Uh, there's more than just a rally planned, right? That's right, Kate. Today is just day one of what will be three days of commemorations, not just here in Minneapolis, but really all across the country, including in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, when President Biden plans to host members of the Floyd family at the White House. Kate? All right, Shaq, thank you. Still ahead tonight, a mother's emotional plea to help catch the road rage shooter who killed her young son. Also, what was this tumultuous school year like? We followed a dozen high school students through it all. We're back with new details about that deadly road rage incident in a on a California freeway that left a little boy dead. The six-year-old's heartbroken mother now making a new plea to the public to help police find the killer. Guad Venegas reports from Southern California. He just didn't deserve that. No one deserves that. Joanna Clunan is living a mother's worst nightmare. Her six-year-old son, Aiden Leos, was killed in the backseat of her car, authorities saying he was struck by a bullet in a road rage incident. I want them to pay for what they've done. Heartbroken, she's now sharing the details of the horrifying ordeal in hopes of catching the perpetrators. It looked like a wagon, and there was a female driver and a male in the passenger seat, and it felt very aggressive from the start. She says the vehicle cut her off before the gunshot. As I was merging away from the carpool lane, I heard a, uh, a loud noise, and I heard my son say, ow. A bullet entering the vehicle through the trunk, striking Aiden, who was sitting in the booster seat. And he had been shot, and uh, I tried to save him while calling 911, but there was, was losing a lot of blood. Aiden was pronounced dead after being taken to a nearby hospital. Authorities continue asking the public for help. If you were driving by, you saw something that was not right, call it in. As investigators work the case and search for clues, a growing memorial for Aiden sits over the scene of his tragic shooting, his family mourning the loss. To have that taken from us, is the loss is it's unspeakable. I mean, I've raised three kids. I mean, I know kids. And this little baby just wanted to bless everybody around him. That's just so young to die, and I would just want him to ha have more time in his life. A life cut too short for an innocent victim of road rage. Guad Venegas, NBC News. It's just heartbreaking. Coming up, kids under pressure. We followed a dozen young high school students for the entire school year. Do you feel you were on the brink of a breakdown? This was the breakdown. How this challenging year changed them forever. We're back with our special report about the tremendous pressure the pandemic put on students. We've been following more than a dozen high school students across the country for this entire school year, chronicling their ups and all too frequent downs. Now, with classes ending, our Rahema Ellis caught up with them yet again to discuss lessons learned and what's ahead. All across the country, students have been tested like never before. I'd say overwhelming. I was just struggling all the time. The very beginning, everything was just chaotic. Since the beginning of the school year, we've been following more than a dozen high school students throughout the nation. 
it was nice to be back. Those first couple of days were definitely, I had a lot of doubt. Their challenges were both academic and emotional. What three words would you use to describe the school year? Unprecedented, chaotic, and a bit stressful. Stressful, different, kind of relentless. Were there moments that were overwhelming? Yeah, there were actually some nights where I have cried over exactly that. But at the beginning of the school year, many were optimistic. I feel like it's just going to be fine. However, as early as October, a wave of anxiety hit, constantly dealing with glitches online. The whole thing would just like kick me out and say, your connection was lost. Some only had access on cell phones. It's hard for me because I can't sit and stare at one thing for a long amount of time. It got even harder by December as schools went through a mix of remote and in-person learning. Students felt disconnected from school and classmates. It's kind of been a weird transition. I don't know. It just feels empty since like half of the students are there. Just two months later, in February, students were still mostly remote and still on edge. Basically, it sucks. We're all really struggling. I've never felt so much stress in one school year. For many, how they attended school was often shifting. This map shows the changes week to week across the country. Districts moving from fully remote in blue to hybrid in yellow to in-person in green and sometimes back. Looking back at video clips, students like Ohio freshman Cam Miller saw themselves struggling. She's rough. It's hard to... It's frustrating. That's what I should say. It's very frustrating. Your reaction, Cam? I do remember how I felt in that moment, and it it did suck. For Allegra, a junior in Chicago, it was overwhelming. I know I was upset and stressed because I was scared that, well, I didn't know what was going on or how to do the assignment. Do you feel you were on the brink of a breakdown? This was the breakdown. It was definitely like one of the two breakdowns I had during the school year. And when John, our junior in Pennsylvania, saw himself, a nod acknowledging where he was. I feel disheartened and I feel um, sort of like everything's out of control and I just kind of have to hold on as tight as I can. John's grade slipped and so did his self-esteem. When you watched this, I saw your face and you got a little tense there for a moment. Yeah, um, I felt some of those lows we had this year. You know, it felt like I was punching a brick wall, trying my absolute hardest, and it felt like I was getting nothing in return. But that feeling didn't last. He and other students learned how to adjust. I didn't just learn about how to adapt to make my grades better. I learned about how to adapt for myself and make myself happy. This changed us, some of us for the better, some of us for the worse. So um, this was just a really formative time period for all of us. Having found ways to cope. It's like, maybe just take a break and put down the computer for like 30 minutes. Learning to not be frustrated as easy as I used to be. Knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself of nine months ago? I'd say nothing can be perfect and you should accept and expect change. Don't let um, things hold you back and um, failures hold you back. Use them as learning experiences. It just takes perseverance and you just got to get through it. 
for these students an education in resilience that could last a lifetime. Rahima Ellis, NBC News. It was a tough year. Still ahead, the college comeback for a Super Bowl champion. How he finally found the inspiration to get back to school. There's good news tonight about persistence and the inspiration we draw from our families. Keena Turner helped the 49ers win four Super Bowls back in the 1980s, but last weekend was a special victory, four decades in the making. Congratulations. Keena Turner was back in the stadium at Purdue University, but not as a linebacker this time. After the NFL drafted him during his senior year at Purdue and cut college short, the former NFL star finally graduated right alongside his 22-year-old daughter, Ella. Give me the play-by-play of what it was, what it was like, you know, to be there, to be on your, your old campus in the stadium, right? That was just a, an unbelievable moment for me where I have all these, you know, memories and emotion. Kena says he wasn't really a serious student when he left to play 11 seasons with the 49ers. He eventually earned a degree from the University of San Francisco, but his unfinished education at Purdue was always on his mind. It was something that was always hanging there for me. So when Ella decided to be a Boilermaker, he followed. Once I heard that, then, you know, I was in and I'm, I'm, I'm like, let's go. <laughs> I didn't even think that it would be like a possibility, like to do something that cool like with your parent, you know. Since he had college credits, he was only a few classes short. During Ella's junior year, he started taking classes remotely. You remember how huh, <laughs> the yeah. physical geography was, you know kicking my butt. When COVID hit, they ended up studying in the same house. So there were times when I had my wife and Ella and my son Miles working on something, helping me, and my oldest daughter on the phone trying to guide me through, (laughs) you know, different things to make this happen. So it was definitely a family effort along the way. (laughs) All that work for this moment. You know, you could have given up on this Purdue dream. Uh, I don't think uh, giving up was an option. Uh, on this one. You know, it's a tagline to say, you know, it's never too late. Uh, But I hope this is an example of that being really true. A dream achieved together. I love you, sweetheart. (laughs) You will always be my baby girl. (laughs) (laughs) Love you too. By the way, Kina still works for the 49ers in management and Ella's planning to move to Phoenix with a degree in sales. And one day she hopes to start her own business. That is NBC Nightly News on this Sunday night. Lester Holt will be back with you tomorrow. I'm Kate Snow. For all of us here at NBC News, stay safe and have a great night. Hey, NBC News viewers. Thanks for checking out our YouTube channel. Subscribe by clicking on that button down here and click on any of the videos over here to watch the latest interviews, show highlights, and digital exclusives. Thanks for watching. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Whatever you're funny, Peacock's got it exclusively. Stream classic sitcoms like The Office, Parks and Recreation, and Two and a Half Men. Plus, catch Peacock original comedies like AP Bio and Stay by the Bell. For all your exclusive comedy faves, go to PeacockTV.com and get started. 
Let me be straight with you. This is a radio commercial for three small business insurance. The policy has no fine print. It's clear what's covered. So while you can't see the following scene, just know that this pet store is protected by three. Joe, did you leave the snake tank open? Look, I don't want to point fingers, but yes. It's fighting me. Sorry, sir. I'm calling my lawyer. They're going to need some help with this mess. Luckily, they have three. No fine print, just exceptional coverage. Three is a product of Berkshire Hathaway Direct Insurance Company. Three. No nonsense, just common sense. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson. I'm delighted to be with you. The phone number, if you would like to be with me, is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. I'm, someone just made a point on Twitter. Let me give this person credit. I, I actually, believe it or not, don't like to take other people's ideas. I'm just really jealous I didn't point this out and this person did, uh, who tweeted this. Oh, Derek Hunter did. Uh, I, I knew, I, I knew, I knew him. Derek Hunter. Uh, he's on uh, WCBM up in Baltimore. Uh, writes for Town Hall. Democrats have more sympathy for terrorists in Gaza than they do any of the black business owners who had their life's work destroyed by BLM and Antifa. He's not wrong. It really is remarkable that the very media outlets and progressives who told us that uh, burning down businesses isn't violence after all they've got insurance are uh, outraged about Israel blowing up what we now know was a Hamas building where they controlled three floors for intelligence and, and terror operations in which the Associated Press and Al Jazeera also occupied the offices. By the way, the AP had been there for years and it's been documented by multiple other press outlets that Hamas operated out of the building. And suddenly we've got this, this uh, the people who told us that uh, we had fiery, mostly fiery, but mostly peaceful protests uh, and that burning down buildings wasn't violence are suddenly like, oh my gosh, they blew up the building. How dare they? This is an infer- No, it was a fiery, but mostly peaceful protest, y'all. They got insurance on the building. It wasn't violence. I mean, that that's what they say in this country. Uh, it, it, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter burned down a building in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and it's a fiery but mostly peaceful protest, and it's not violence because they have insurance and it was just a building and no lives were lost, well, then the same goes for the AP building in Hamas territory that was also used by Hamas. It was a fiery but mostly peaceful protest by Israel, and it was not violence because no lives were lost, and they've got insurance on the building anyway, I'm sure. They can rebuild. I'm sure Hamas can use international charitable aid to rebuild the building in the same way they used it to build their rockets. It works. Might as well go with it. Now, I should move on. There's actually uh, news I want to spend some time with. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has come out in favor of a boycott diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Said if we don't speak out against human rights violations in China for commercial reasons, we lose all moral authority uh, to speak out for human rights anywhere. So how sad it is to see the Olympic corporate sponsors look the other way on China's abuses of a, out of concern for their bottom line with some even lobbying against the bipartisan Uyghur forced labor bill. Imagine their lobbying against a bill 
of forced labor when the, the country, our country has declared this a genocide. Here's what I, I propose and join those who are proposing is a diplomatic boycott. I don't know if it's possible because we have not succeeded in the past. And I'm a big sports fan. I watch the Olympics in the middle of the night. You ever see me during Olympic season? I'm never sleeping. I'm always watching because usually it's in a different time zone. And to see the discipline, the focus, uh, the dedication of our young, of our athletes out there is just a source of such pride. Let's honor them at home. Let's not honor the Chinese government by having heads of state go to China to show their support for their athletes. Nancy Pelosi doesn't necessarily want a boycott of the Olympics. I'm I'm torn on this issue, just so you know. Uh, By the way, I, I want you to know this may be one of the few times I agree with Nancy Pelosi that there's no reason any diplomat should go to Beijing. And honestly, uh, I, I think that the sponsors should pull out. If Beijing wants the Olympics, so they're a communist nation. They can pay for it themselves. They can own the whole thing. They're going to anyway. But I don't think that we need to give it any credibility. I don't know that NBC News should even cover it. Now, I realize that if the athletes do go, that uh, you're going to want to see your athletes and you're going to want to see them beat the Chinese. But I think we've got to deal with the issue of China. This is from ESPN. Groups alleging human rights abuses against minorities in China are calling for a full-blown boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, a move likely to ratchet up pressure on the International Olympic Committee, athletes, sponsors, and sports federations. A coalition representing Uyghurs, Tibetans, residents of Hong Kong, and others issued a statement Monday calling for the boycott, eschewing lesser measures that had been floated, such as a diplomatic boycott, and further negotiations with the IOC or China. The time for talks with the IOC is over. Ladong Thethong of the Tibet Action Institute said in an exclusive interview with the Associated Press, this cannot be games as usual or business as usual, not for the IOC and not for the international community. Now, I mentioned this story yesterday, and one of the interesting points here is, uh, let me read you this. The IOC has repeatedly said it must be neutral and stay out of politics. The Switzerland-based body is essentially a sports business, deriving about 75% of its income from selling broadcast rights and 18% more from sponsors. It also has observer status at the United Nations. We are not a super world government, IOC President Thomas Bach said. China's foreign ministry has criticized the politicization of sports and has said any boycott is doomed to failure. China has denied accusations of genocide against the Uyghur people. A recent U.S. State Department report stated explicitly that genocide and crimes against humanity have taken place in the past year against Muslim Uyghurs and other minorities in the western region of Xinjiang. Interestingly enough, IOC's uh, top sponsors, NBC News is one, generates 40% of all IOC revenue. So NBC generates 40% of all IOC revenue. Why are we supporting the Beijing Olympics? It's one thing to say, well, let the athletes go compete. I I understand that. 
the athletes have been busting their butts for years to get to the level of being able to go compete in the Olympics. And I understand that. But I also understand that the Chinese are engaged in a genocide. Not just Uyghurs, but their Christian population as well is being exterminated. They are a communist nation intent on being a world superpower and doing so by running roughshod over the world. An illiberal government, not just an illiberal government, a communist government, an authoritarian state. At a time the left in this country is so convinced that the Republicans are becoming an authoritarian party and must be stopped, they sure aren't doing a damn thing about an authoritarian government that wants to take over the world. China doesn't want an Asian sphere of influence. They want a global sphere of influence. They're building an air base or military base in the Caribbean. I think we got to consider a boycott. And beyond a diplomatic boycott, there should be a sponsor boycott. Now, that's not going to happen. Nike is perfectly happy to use child labor in China to make its products. Disney is perfectly happy to make movies in areas of China where there are concentration camps and use the Chinese people to help them. Apple is perfectly happy to make its products in China. We have a problem the Chinese understand so well that capitalists are perfectly willing to sell out their grandmother as long as they can make money. And the Chinese are taking advantage of this capitalist sentiment, or at least the parody of it, and big business, frankly, really is willing to do that. I I struggle on the issue of the athletes because the athletes have worked years. They're at the top of their game to be able to go compete and to be able to win. I mean, think about the, what, the 1980 Olympics and the hockey game? The Americans beat the Russians? It was a huge... Middle and moral victory for the United States. But I also understand that the more we give attention to China, including something as, that they will use as, as for propaganda, that we're giving them a level of clout, I don't know that we need to give them. And I struggle with what to do in that regard, and I think that the, the appropriate compromise is probably to let the athletes go um, but do a diplomatic and sponsor boycott. Um, let, let, the, let the teams go, American sponsors, Coke, you know, McDonald's and the like, Home Depot, sponsor them, get them there. But the, the, the blatant advertising and the NBC coverage and, and the pomp and circumstance, you know NBC is not going to critically cover China. You know they're not. Um, and and I, I'm, I, I think we need to downplay the Beijing Olympics lest we give Beijing the international celebrity and credibility that they want. Um, I do agree with Nancy Pelosi that there should be an international boycott. If, if there's not an overall boycott of the Olympics, if we're not canceling the Olympics, if we're not going to boycott the Olympics, uh, we should send no diplomatic representatives to Beijing and give them that level of insult while our athletes can compete and hopefully crush the Chinese uh, athletes and, and show that we're number one, uh, don't send the moral authority of the American diplomatic mission 
to Beijing to stand in a box with the dictator of China pretending that all is well. Um, I think that's problematic. Um, I, I really, I really, I struggle with this one because uh, I know the hard work of the athletes, but I also know the what China wants is a big PR victory, and I'm not sure that we need to give that PR victory to them. Um, and and I'm I, again, I'm 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 thinking out loud here on this one, but I agree with with Nancy Pelosi that we should at least have a diplomatic boycott. And it pains me to agree with her on anything, but I think we should have a diplomatic boycott. Uh, even if we send our, our athletes to China. Let's go to the phones on this one. Uh, Morgan, I was kind of hoping you were listening so that you would call in. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right, Eric. How are you doing? Good. So for those of you who don't know, this is my friend Morgan, uh, who was a kayaker, uh, was was competing for the Olympics, and has strongly held views on this issue. I do, and, and I happen to t- tune into your show kind of while you're in the middle of it. So, you know, I may have missed some of your um, commentary well, so about let the me, Let me tell you where I am. I, I struggle with this one because I know the, the hard work that people like you put in to get to the Olympics, and I'm not sure we need an athletic boycott, but uh, having the diplomats say we're not going to go give China moral credibility by having us stand with President Xi and watch this, um, having NBC not give the glowing favorable coverage – um, that that NBC tends to do with these countries. I, I think maybe there's something to that while still allowing the athletes to compete. But I'm not sure because I, I kind of also understand if, if if the athletes go, it gives China the PR victory they want. So uh, weigh in on this. Yeah, so when you say diplomatic boycott, um, I mean, what do you mean by that exactly? You know, so, the you, you know, the, the is... world leaders tend to go for the opening of the Olympics and they hang out with the president of the country and, and they pat him on the back and say, job well done. So uh, don't send Joe Biden or Kamala Harris over to Beijing for the Olympics. Well, I think that they feel right at home in China anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but fair, fair. But, <laughs> but aside from that, um, you know, one thing that's interesting, and I don't think that a lot of people – actually realize this is that the United States Olympic team is one of the only countries in the entire world that is not funded um, or even subsidized by governmental funding or government funding. The the entire USOC is funded by either grants or donations or sponsorships from these large corporations. Um, So, you know, when I say, you know, I think the athlete boycott, if that were to happen, would have to come straight from the athletes. I don't see how that the USSC or the United States could, could technically boycott the games anyway when they don't have any skin in the game in terms of funding, um, but they still profit off of the athletes' experiences and their competitions themselves. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, it does. Now, I, I, Jimmy Carter orchestrated the boycott, I guess, of the Moscow Olympics that one time. Um, I, uh, the I'm government, sure I, I'm how sure, has the, some clout the there, but... Yeah. yeah, but I mean, and, you know, can you talk about though? Because uh, I'm, I'm running short of time here, but talk about the the athlete experience of of what it takes to get there. The athlete experience is it, if you want to go to the Olympics, that has to be your sole and only focus. Um, you have to eat, breathe, sleep, and dream about your sport, and it has to be a hundred percent all the time. You're constantly training. You're constantly traveling. You know. The thing that you're, most people are worried about the least are politics, unless those politics are interfering with you being able to, to do your sport. 
And so I would see it, except for these, you know, top elite level, extremely popular and successful athletes when it comes to money, um, I would see the vast majority of athletes not looking to boycott um, the Olympics simply because they put in so much time and effort and sacrifice just to try and make it to that single race. I, I, I don't see a boycott happening, although I do agree with some of your points on why one should. But from an athlete's perspective, um, I, I wouldn't support it. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Listen, thank you for calling. I, I got to go to a commercial break. It's always good to talk to you and, and glad you were listening so we could get your perspective on this one. Hi there. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Delighted to have you with me today. I... I don't think we're going to be able to decide on the on the boycott thing but with with the Olympics, but I'm I'm more and more leaning towards that just because I I don't think we need to give Beijing any any more credible standing on the world stage. I want to switch though to a different topic. You're you're more than welcome to to chime in on that if you want. Um, I want to play you some audio of Barack Obama. He was on uh, what's his name show. Oh, I, I I can see that the the British guy. Um, anyway, this one. When it when it comes to aliens, uh, there's some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. Um, but you'll tell us off air. Great. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> no, look, look. The tr- the truth is that when I came into office, I asked. Right. I, I was like, all right. You know, is there the lab somewhere where? We're keeping the uh, alien specimens in spaceship. Uh, and, uh, you know, they did a little bit of research, and the answer was no. Uh, so, but what what is true, uh, and I'm, I'm actually being serious here, is, is that uh, there are, uh, there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. We can't explain how they moved. Their trajectory, uh, they, they did not have an easily explainable pattern. And so, you know, I, th- I think that we're, uh, people still take seriously trying to investigate and figure out what that is. Uh, but I have nothing to report to you today. So that was, it was James Corden's show. Thanks, Philip. Um, James Corden's show. Uh, and... We continue to hear this buzzing, and you know there are, there are a couple of takes on this that are circulating out there on on the UFO stuff. Barack Obama confirming there are things we can't explain. Uh, one of the takes I've seen from some commentators, mainstream commentators, is that uh, the government's known about UFOs all the all along. They know that the documents are about to come out, and so they're trying to do damage control in advance. Uh, so that they don't have to acknowledge they've been lying to us for 60 years that the aliens are real. I think the smarter commentators out there are saying that the odds are uh, this is intelligence operations from the Chinese or the Russians, that they have developed drones. It is not a coincidence. I don't think that they're hovering over military installations. Why? Because if you hover over military installations... The government is going to ping you to try to figure out what you are. And in the uh, identification mode of using whatever technology the government has to be able to identify, uh, that can then be relayed back so that the Chinese know how to blind us before their attacks. 
uh, as well as any other intelligence they get. But also, there are smart commentators who point out the Chinese have been stealing our IP for 20 years. This has been going on for so long, it almost makes it unlikely that they're the culprits, given that um, they just haven't seemed to be technologically up to snuff for decades and have had to steal all of our IP just to get ahead. The fallback is always the angels and demons. Um, I I think uh, we know angels and demons exist. We don't know that little green men exist, so maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Why, hello there. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Are you ready for the great crime wave? Because it's happening. The crime wave is upon us. Can I just say, I don't I don't know where y'all are listening. We're all over the place these days. But I am south of Atlanta, Georgia, and Macon, Georgia. We ourselves have our own problems. But Atlanta is just overwhelmed these days with shootings. They tend to happen between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. And they happen all over the place in the city and it's, it's causing problems. You're, you're it turning into a, they're turning into a tent city. You've got homeless people all over the place, uh, living on the streets. They've set up tents. There's a, so in, in the Metro Atlanta area, um, you have the state capital in downtown Atlanta and by running along the side of it, North South is what's called the connector. It's uh, I-75 and I-85 combined as one interstate. And on the south side of the capital, there's an east-west interstate that's I-20. And when you go from I-75, how did southbound, and you're headed west on I-20, there's this big curve, and in that curve is a big grassy area, and it's covered in tents of homeless. It's like a homeless camp. And there is more and more violence in the area. There are more and more uh, urban camping, the left likes to call it. It's no longer homelessness, it's urban camping. Now, who the hell goes and camps on concrete? I I saw some quote, somebody on on social media was talking this morning that uh, the best campsites are found, not made. Oh, look, I found this plot of warm cement. I'm going to pitch my tent there, except some of the homeless people are pitching different tents. Um, my goodness, it is, it's, it's not what you want and it's not just Atlanta. It is spreading across the country. Uh, Axios has a story here. Police recruiting suffers as morale hits new low police departments across the country are struggling to attract applicants after a year of racial justice protests against police use of excess force and calls for police reform dampen morale within the profession. Recruiting deficits add strain to existing forces and could increase costs through overtime or employee burnout per the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And if Americans want better police forces, city officials say, this isn't the way to get them. The trend comes as activists in some cities suggest that there could be another long, hot summer of unrest in the name of ending police police brutality and racial inequity. Bring it on. Let America see you people for who you are. Applications were down 26% during the first four months of 2021 compared to the same period last year, 
Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department spokesperson, spokesman, Rob Tufano, tells Axios, the police department got about 300 applications last month for its newest class of recruits, roughly 50% fewer, in Des Moines. In northwest Kansas, one recent group who passed initial testing for the Fayetteville Police Department had only 10 applicants qualify for interviews compared to what's typically around 40. It's not just an issue of getting new talent in the door, but keeping the existing force intact. In Minneapolis, the epicenter of calls to defund and dismantle the police, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, police morale is at an all-time low. Last year, 105 officers left the department twice as many as usual. In Denver, a pandemic-battered budget forced the city to hire 97 fewer officers than 2020, and some of the 81 officers who were injured in last summer's unrest haven't returned to active duty or to full duty. Amid calls to defund the police, Tampa Mayor Jane Castor, who was police chief for Florida's largest city from 2009 to 2015, won't touch the police budget. A Bloomberg report on police budget spending in American cities since Floyd's death shows that Tampa has the largest police budget increase among all 50 cities studied. We're one of the safest cities in the United States for our size, and that's because our police department and our community work hand-in-hand hand to make the neighborhoods safe. Data show that higher police spending doesn't necessarily equal less crime, and violent crime is up in almost every big city during the COVID pandemic, including Tampa. There's the data for you for what's going on. When you attack the police, where 99% of them are good, law-abiding, hardworking Americans who want to keep you and me safe, what you do is signal that's not a job that you should get into. In the metro Atlanta area where I am most familiar, one of the things that has happened is when the politicians began to make the police the bad guys, the police couldn't police anymore because they were scared that if I do something and a mistake happens, if the bad guy does something and it's caught on film and can be characterized as badly against me, well, then I'm going to jail. I'm going to be prosecuted. I'm going to be fired. I'm going to be the bad guy when I'm not. So why do the job? Policing is not rocket science. Can, can we all acknowledge that? Now, don't hear me disparaging the police. I'm, I'm trying to make a point here, and I'm realizing some people get hypersensitive when you say something like, oh, you're calling the police stupid. No, pay attention. I'm about to make a point. Policing is not rocket science. And it's also not rocket science to understand that when you have men and women who put their lives on the line to keep you and me safe, to make sure bad guys aren't breaking into our houses, to make sure people aren't carjacking us, to make sure banks aren't being robbed, to make sure people aren't being murdered, to investigate the murders when they happen and ensure that justice happens. It's not rocket science to understand that when those people are under attack from the mob, fewer people want to do those things. You used to have kids who wanted to grow up to be police officers, and now they're told if you're a police officer, you're a racist. It doesn't matter. If you're black, you're an Uncle Tom sellout. We ask them now to videotape themselves on the job, unlike pretty much any other profession. We allow armchair quarterbacks to nitpick those videos and make claims, wildly distorting what actually happened in some cases. We hold them accountable. 
and you're not allowed to have a nuanced conversation. You know, there are bad police officers out there. You talk to any police officer and they'll tell you there are bad police officers out there. There are, are bullies. There are, are people who got into the police force because they want to, uh, they want to bully other people. They, they like to exert authority and they are in the vast minority of police officers. Many of the police officers I talk to say there needs to be more training and there aren't budgets for it, but there needs to be better training and more training, more thought out training. But also that many of the people who comment on police forces in this country really have no freaking clue what they're talking about when they talk about the sort of police force training and reform that's needed. Like, uh, let's bring a social worker to the crime scene day is nonsense. But... The American people, I think, fundamentally understand this stuff. I, I do think the American people tend to understand what's going on here, and, and they would rather a few bad police officers on the force and, and discipline them when they're caught than have no police at all. Kind of like the old saying that we would rather a few guilty people uh, get out, be found not guilty than to have an innocent man be executed. You would rather have a few bad police officers than have uh, no police officers at all. But the Democrats would rather you believe we should have no police officers at all, lest we have a couple of bad police officers. But the problem here is that the American people, they get it. They understand it. For the second time in four years, according to the Washington Post, Representative Sean Maloney, a Democrat of New York, drew one of the toughest assignments investigating what went wrong in a disappointing election. The 2017 after-action report followed even more devastating results, a clean Republican sweep of holding the House while Donald Trump won the presidency and Republicans retained the Senate. This time around, President Biden won by 7.1 million votes and Democrats gained three seats to claim the Senate majority, while Democrats lost 11 seats in the House on Election Day 2020 and Speaker Pelosi barely clings to the majority. Maloney, the new Democrat of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, worked with senior staff to analyze 600 polls and House races last year, matched up against voter files from the November election and other state and local data. The 52-page PowerPoint report, which Maloney presented to the caucus during a Tuesday evening call, splits the difference on the key question of whether Democrats just had a bad polling or a bad agenda that turned away voters. Maloney laid out how Democrats simply underestimated the number of hardcore Trump voters and... With more Trump voters in the voting booth, the Republicans attack against the defund the police movement proved more potent than Democrats ever anticipated. The lies and distortions about defund and socialism carried a punch, but the Republicans think it got them over a 10-foot wall when Trump's turnout gave them a 7-foot ladder, Maloney said. Before November, the party had won the popular vote in the presidential contest, had also gained seats in the House in 13 of the last 14 elections, which fueled expectations for Democrats. Instead, after those losses, Democrats started a fierce internal debate about whether some of the liberal stars inside their caucus who've embraced labels such as Democratic Socialism tagged other incumbents in swing districts with an unpopular brand. Threading the needle, Maloney's deep dive had to both review past mistakes while helping prepare the fast-approaching midterm elections. Polling missed the Trump surge at the very end. Okay, here's the thing that you need to understand here, is that Sean Maloney can't really speak the truth to the Democrats anymore. This is one of the problems you find in, in communist countries, 
people can't really speak the truth to power because they'll wind up in the gulag. Here comes Sean Maloney. He can't really say, yeah, your, your defund the police socialist rhetoric was bad. He's got to say, well, the polls were wrong, misunderstood the Trump support out there, and, 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 and that nearly got them where they are, but they didn't take back the majority, and that's why. When you know and I know and every single Democrat who has any sort of common sense knows, including most of the Democrats who lost, that in fact the Democrats and their defund the police nonsense and bring on socialism nonsense spooked a whole lot of people who didn't like Donald Trump, so they voted Democrat for president and down-ballot voted Republican. And if you understand the election wasn't stolen, you can process that clearly. And Sean Maloney knows it and had to dance around that fact lest he get canceled by his own caucus because socialists and authoritarians don't like people speaking truth to power. And the Democratic Party is increasingly an authoritarian party of wokes who want to cancel you if you say something they don't like. Now on the police and defund effort, let's go to Johnny calling from Macon. Johnny, welcome to the program. Hi, Eric. How you doing? Good. How are you? I think I'm doing fine. I'm a police officer here in jail in Macon. I just don't see the hate and the racist attitudes that we keep hearing about every day in the news and the media. And I also believe that the Democrats are wanting to defund all the police departments because they want to enact a national police force. And well, guess who done me. that in the forties? Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, enact a, a national police force with a common standard. Uh, you know, I will tell you that the the hate and invective against the police, I don't think, uh, so I, I'm here and making with you, I, I think you're right, but in major urban areas, particularly areas where you've got big left-wing college campuses, I think you're more likely to see it, the agitation of, of left-wing activists on college campuses and activists. Uh, I certainly think you see it in a place like Atlanta where the mayor blames the police for everything. Um, it, yeah. we're, we're lucky here. Uh, we got a new mayor and the old mayor himself wasn't hostile to police, but gosh, in some places they try to make you guys the fall guy for everything. So uh, Johnny, let me ask you a question as a police officer. Do you have to wear one of the body cameras? Um, I don't now when I was on, when I was on patrol and when I was on the heat unit, yes, I had to. So uh, are you familiar? I, or I would actually like to get your thoughts on, on the immediate release of this stuff. Because I, I feel aggrieved, I guess, for police officers when I see a bunch of idiots out there who armchair quarterback a situation that, that they weren't at. Like, oh, look, that happened in three seconds. Surely he could have pulled his gun and shot the person in the leg instead of killing him. Well, we're not trained to shoot in the leg. Right. And we have a simulator at our agency that is in real time, and it's just about impossible. It's not impossible, but it's not hard. It's not easy to do. Yeah. As far as releasing the body camera footage, if you didn't do anything wrong, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah, that's fair. I just, I, I, my, my apprehension on this is nowadays so many people want to look at the camera footage and then armchair quarterback uh, the situation when they weren't there. And yeah, I think you can certainly catch. Uh, bad things happening, but oftentimes you see something that wasn't bad. And uh, if you're if you're someone who thinks the police are out to get you, well, then immediately you're going to conclude whatever you guys did, you were a bad guy. So uh, it's just it's an unfortunate yeah. situation. But I, you know, uh, at least you're here in Middle Georgia, where I think uh, people, regardless of of race, income, and education, uh, understand the police actually have the community's back, as opposed to places like Portland, Oregon, and the like. 
<laughs> yeah. Don't want to go there. That's very true. Look, nope. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just, like I said, I just, I go to these, I go to just about every neighborhood in this city. Uh-huh. And I can't tell you how many times I've been invited into a house because they're cooking lunch. And they tell me to come on in and have something to eat, and I have to tell them no. <laughs> I just don't see. I just don't see all the hatred for the police that we hear, like you said, in, in more metropolitan areas like Atlanta and all. That's probably where it's mostly at. Yeah, well, it's because we live in God's country too. Johnny, listen, I got to go to commercial break. Thanks for the phone call. We do, hey, y'all. I, I just people ask me all the time, why, why don't why aren't you in New York or Washington or even Atlanta? And because I like Middle Georgia people they're nice here it is eric erickson here and this hour of the program is brought to you by first liberty building and loan they are in noonan georgia they can help you wherever you are in the united states of america they want to help you they've been helping small businesses become big businesses since the early 1990s frost family great christian family i've known them for a while they're heavily involved in conservative politics and uh, they are great at what they do. They can help get to yes on lending decisions where a lot of banks are telling you no in this current economy. Uh, they want to help you, but they do big deals, six figures and higher. They don't do little deals. Um, they're good at big deals. So if you need a big deal, go to a big deal, First Liberty. Go to firstlibertyga.com. That's their website, firstlibertyga.com. Spend just five minutes with them. See if they're a good fit. Speaking of deals and money, have you seen what's happening to Bitcoin? Things are not going well for cryptocurrency at the moment. Bitcoin is plunging. Why? China wants to get into the cryptocurrency game. And because China wants to get into the cryptocurrency gang, it is going after Bitcoin, the leader of the cryptocurrency gang. Uh, Bitcoin has plunged. Uh, China is cracking down on digital coins. This is from CNN. Um China has taken more steps to crack down on the digital coins. The Chinese have decided uh, they've issued a series of financial statements uh, and the financial institutions and payment companies should not participate in any transaction related to cryptocurrency, nor should they provide crypto-related services to their clients. Prices of cryptocurrency have skyrocketed and plummeted recently and speculative trading has bounced back. This seriously harms the safety of people's property and disturbs normal economic and financial order, said the statement from regulators supervising the People's Bank of China and the Chinese Insurance and Banking Commission. China's chilly attitude towards cryptocurrency goes back years. While the government doesn't completely ban crypto, regulators in 2013 declared Bitcoin was not a real currency and forbade financial and payment institutions from transacting with it. At the time, they cited the risk that Bitcoin could be used for money laundering. As a matter of fact, Bitcoin can be used for a lot of criminal transactions, but Bitcoin can also be used by people who want to evade the radar of a ruthless regime that engages in concentration camps. So China doesn't like that, and they want to stamp it out. Uh, They also want to compete. They want a digital currency of their own backed by their paper currency. And so they're about to get into cryptocurrency, and they're trying to wipe out the competition. So Bitcoin is crashing. Ethereum is uh, crashing. Others are other cryptocurrencies are crashing. I still, again, um, I I think that cryptocurrency is all the rage these days. But uh, the tulip bulbs at one point were also all the rage. And I get people all the time. No, no, they're different. Let me explain why. But the problem is that 
if you if you want to go for something that's backed by value, a, a cryptocurrency is backed by an algorithm. At least the people who say the U.S. currency should be on the gold standard uh, have some measurable sense of the currency must be valued by something uh, other than what a state says it's worth. I don't think that cryptocurrencies are sustainable, particularly as so many illiberal governments like China and Russia decide to exert themselves on the world stage because the cryptocurrencies are backed by an algorithm. Uh, and are they really even currency? Who actually uses Bitcoin for transactions? People save it and expect other people to save it and drive up the value. And then when someone starts cashing out, it causes a frenzy and more and more cash out. Um, I don't think it's long-term stable. And when a government snaps its finger and says you can't use this anymore, the value of it goes away because there's only an algorithm behind it. There's not a gold bar or a silver coin. It's going to become more and more problematic as the Chinese also decide to invade the market themselves and start competing with their own cryptocurrency, which is exactly what's going on here. But also the Chinese want to be able to control it and track it, and you can't track Bitcoin, which is also, to China's point, why money launderers and drug lords love to use Bitcoin, but they're not the only people who do it. It's a libertarian thing. The tomorrow, I think I'll treat myself to McDonald's breakfast. And if I go to bed early, it's kind of like morning comes a lot faster deal. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's $1-2-3 menu. Order ahead on the McDonald's app and get all your favorite breakfast items like sausage McGriddles, sausage McMuffin, and hash browns for just a few bucks. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. McDonald's. I'm loving it. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Want to save 17 gallons of fuel every 1,000 miles? You can with the powerful combination of Michelin X1 tires and the Michelin Energy Guard aerodynamic solution on your truck. Michelin X1 tires can reduce rolling resistance up to 30% for more fuel savings. And Michelin Energy Guard helps you control airflow for lower costs per mile. Go to business.michelinman.com slash fuel saver for details and start saving today. You can listen to us on the go. Hey, which glasses look better on me? Oh, what's this? Zenny's 3D virtual try-on. Pretty cool, right? Hmm. Uh, I don't know about the purple cat eyes. I think they're fun. What about these tortoiseshell glasses? Or these rimless sunglasses? Oh, what about these clear frames? Wait, are those prices real? Do they have glasses for men? Yep. They also have affordable blue light glasses. Seriously? At those prices? Get them all. I like where this is going. Zenni.com. Quality prescription glasses starting at $6.95. Want to save 17 gallons of fuel every 1,000 miles? You can with the powerful combination of Michelin X1 tires and the Michelin Energy Guard aerodynamic solution on your truck. Michelin X1 tires can reduce rolling resistance up to 30% for more fuel savings. And Michelin Energy Guard helps you control airflow for lower costs per mile. Go to business.michelinman.com slash fuel saver for details and start saving today.
Hello again, everyone. Chris Matthew with Forbidden Knowledge News. Today I'm here with Darcy Weir. He is an independent documentary filmmaker from Canada, trained as a video editor, writer, director, and producer. He has chosen to work on some of the most fascinating subjects that are discussed today, and he's going to be a presenter at the upcoming Laughlin UFO Mega Conference. Darcy, welcome. How are you doing? Good, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I always enjoy, enjoy our conversations. I'm looking forward to meeting you at the conference. And not only are you going to have an amazing presentation, but you're going to be showing, uh, premiering three new documentary films. Isn't that right? That's right. Yeah. So the uh, first day I arrive is on the, I think the Saturday. Uh, and then Sunday, I'll be doing a presentation in the day talking about secret space and uh, my thoughts, my theories, uh, which I'll be presenting later on in film form uh, later in the week. But my secret space research, you know, it really has to do with history, going back to the starting of the NASA space program. Um, I'm really excited to sort of present on that and present on some of the things that I'm working on for the second part of this documentary, uh, Secret Space UFOs Part 2, which will most likely come out way later this year, around Christmas or something like that. So presentation during the day, that night I will be doing a world premiere of two other documentaries, uh, Crop Circle Realities and Volcanic UFO Mysteries. I'll also be doing a Q&A after, so if people want to ask questions about the making of the film, the research that I found, um, you know, some of the folks that are included in the film, that type of thing, I'll be there. Um, and then on Tuesday night, I will be unveiling to the world Secret Space UFOs Part 1, which is the first in a historical sort of chronology presenting space research, um, cover-up, and UFOs in space. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see all that and hear your presentation. Uh, now, I'd like to get to your couple of thoughts on the secret space program in general. How deep do you think it goes based on, you know, people you've talked to, interviews you've done? Uh, you know, I'm sure you've, you've done a lot of research into the area. How deep do you think we've gone into space? How uh, do you think that we possibly have unknown bases on our moon and possibly Mars or beyond? Um, well, I'll speak to the moon piece of the, that series of questions. The, the moon, I think, definitely has remnants of bases, uh, whether they're ours or someone else's. That's really the, the most interesting part of the answer. Um, you know, people have speculated on this for a number of years because there's been indications uh, by many of NASA's research programs and probes that they've sent out to space um, pointing to the fact that something anomalous is on the moon. You know, Richard Hoagland's done some good work there. Um, there's all kinds of folks that have lended to the mystery. Uh, I can't say that anything is a hundred percent, 
But I think what what we can absolutely prove is that NASA's explanations don't seem to add up. Um, and, you know, even more interesting is that the military is very in bed with NASA. And really, NASA is supposed to look like this complete civilian organization. And, and there are many civilians that work for NASA. But it is, by all accounts, in my opinion, very attached to the Department of Defense. Um, you know, if you think about any country's desire to have absolute military superiority on Earth, the first sort of area that you must dominate, the first uh, space is outer space. Uh, because this is your theater in which you can conquer the planet. And uh, I think there's really good evidence to prove that we've probably been doing some things in space that are secretive. And there have been things shown on NASA space cameras, NASA, um, you know, voyages with astronauts. Um, that have presented extremely anomalous and UFO events. And those UFO events have been covered up or explained away as nothing. Um, but, you know, the world is changing right now as we speak. Uh, and I think what the Pentagon is releasing now will unfold um, and eventually will touch many different aspects of research agencies, and that would include NASA. And I think, I don't think it will, I don't think what's happening now will lead to NASA ever admitting that they've taken part in this cover up, but um, it will rationalize why space should be a theater of operations to dominate by the military industrial complex. And I was just about to ask you, why do you think, uh, you know, especially now that the Pentagon's coming out and agreeing, yes, that these things exist. We don't know what they are. We just had the 60 minute special the other day. We're supposed to have this information dumped in June. Um, why do you think now all of a sudden that they're starting to admit these things and show more of an interest? Um, do you think there may be something down the pipe that they know about, or maybe they're trying to roll out these secret space program toys that they already, you know, have in production? What do you think about that? Well, I think, yeah, the Navy patent that was released recently that showed a, you know, a triangular shaped craft um, that is, pretty much identifying what many people have called the TR3B. TR3. Yeah. And um, is that a space-capable uh, aircraft? I don't know. But there have been many, many sightings of a um, delta-shaped craft, a uh, triangular-shaped um, UFO floating in space around Earth many, many, many throughout history. And so I think that would, it would make sense that they're going to at one point maybe 
demonstrate that that's part of their arsenal um, to defend Earth from Tic Tac UFOs, whatever uh, they're trying to drum up in terms of that um, story. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't know for sure what the end game is. Uh, I can only speculate. And anybody who says they do know is lying because the only people that could know are the Pentagon and, and the department of defense. So I think, uh, it's, it's, it's rational to be skeptical about what, what their, uh, story is. Um, there's going to be people that fall into many camps. Um, there, there's going to be people that are paranoid that this is a, uh, power grab move um, to lock down things even more on the planet. Maybe there's people that will believe that uh, they're trying to start a war with aliens or something like that. This has been a, a long running theme, you know, since uh, Greer's 2001 disclosure project, Carol Rawson, you know, working, working for Werner von Braun. These are all theories that have been out there for a long time. Um, and, uh, then there's a, a huge camp of people that believe, you know, we might be entering the age of Aquarius and we'll be, you know, having mass contact and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to join our space brothers, walk right onto their craft and head off to another planet or some other star. But I don't think that's going to happen. I, I, I think there's, uh, you know, maybe some, uh, more boring things that are going to happen as a result of this disclosure. Unfortunately, that's usually the case. I don't see us walking on board with our star brothers anytime soon. Uh, but you're also uh, going to be uh, premiering your film, Volcanic UFO Mysteries, which I find fascinating because I've seen plenty of uh, very intriguing videos of UFOs hanging out or kind of buzzing near active volcanoes. Based on your research, would you say that this is a common occurrence that these UFOs will hang out near these active volcanoes? Yeah, I think in the documentary will demonstrate that there's a long history of anomalous craft going in and out of active volcano areas. Um, in and out, meaning sometimes going into the craters of these volcanoes and sometimes just being very close uh, in, in presence to an active volcano. And, uh, you know, what people might note is that any civilian aircraft, first of all, it's completely unrealistic that these could be uh, operating in, in this aerospace because it's extremely dangerous the ash the um you know pyroclastic flows everything about this environment is not safe for a civilian aircraft uh or commercial aircraft and um then that leaves what are these objects um you know so we speculate that in the documentary and uh specifically we focus on uh, many of the sightings that have happened around volcanoes that are active in Mexico. 
It's going to be really cool. I can't wait to to see those uh, documentaries, hang out with you um, and see your presentation and, of course, hang out with everyone there. Now, if if people are interested in finding out more about some of the documentaries you've done already and your previous work, what's the best way that they can do so? Sure. Uh, They can just head over to my website. It's www.occultjourneys.com. Uh, and there you can click on the poster for the film. It'll take you right through to a site to stream and watch. Um, and also you can watch the trailer and read about the film before you really jump in to the dive end, to the deep awesome. end. <laughs> yes, that's going to be great. Well, I can't wait to meet you in Laughlin uh, and hear all the wonderful presentations there and meet all of you. So I look forward to it. I hope to see as many of you as possible. Thanks, Chris. Hello again, everyone. Chris Matthew with Forbidden Knowledge News. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Melinda Greer. She is a board-certified pediatrician who has been practicing in the American heartland for over 20 years. She was a medical technologist prior to beginning medical school at the age of 33. She is also an experiencer who, over her life, became increasingly mystified by an array of strange occurrences. From an early age, she realized that these type of paranormal events did not seem to disrupt the life of most of her fellow humans, a revelation that often made her question her sanity as well as questioning the very nature of reality. Melinda, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Uh, this is going to be a, an awesome conference, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your, your presentation. Um, I'd love for you to give us a little description of what you're going to be presenting in Laughlin. Well, from a very early age, I've had some pretty unusual experiences. I didn't know at the time that, that most other people didn't experience these things until I started telling others of them. Um, my mom was a little bit appalled. Um, my friends were, um, they just thought I had a good imagination or something. So I learned not to talk about a lot of these things. Uh, but from a very early age, um, I had everything from what may have been a near-death experience at around the age of four to five. Um, or at least in what people call a near-death-like experience, where I went to an altered dimension and um, experiences things that I was not able to experience on the physical plane. And I think that kind of started the whole journey for me, because after that, I did not accept my circumstances. Um, I did not accept the religion I'd been born into. I did not accept uh, what people told me <laughs> as being necessarily true. It might be true for them, but it wasn't necessarily true for me. So it kind of been, began this lifelong quest. And um, it's been kind of a, like a series of rabbit holes since then, because I've had so many different paranormal experiences from, oh gosh, UFOs, obviously, um, being at a UFO conference, but also uh, I've seen Bigfoot on three occasions. Um, I have, after a second near-death experience when I was, what, 55? Well, no, it was 2013, whatever I was then. Um, I started seeing ghosts at the hospital (laughs) where I worked, and that was kind of new to me. Um, I've had out-of-body experiences. I've had an experience where there was a physical phenomenon that involved geography that I can't quite explain. It's a long story. And then following that, it was like I was hearing um, commentary. I mean, it wasn't 
commentary that was audible necessarily, but there was definitely some something scrutinizing me. I felt very much non-human. <laughs> and it, was, it had commentary on what I had just done and how I had um, perceived it and how I had um, reacted to it. So I was more weirded out by the commentary than I was about the actual phenomenon itself. So, you know, just strange occurrences. I've had missing time. I've had, you know, I can't say that I've ever been abducted by alien beings, but you know, when you have missing time, you just don't know what happened. <laughs> you haven't a clue. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've had a lot of unusual occurrences. They've all been challenging. They've all taught me not to fear, be fearful of things just because it's unknown. I mean, I've gotten over so many fears. And so it's been challenging, but it's also been a learning experience. Um, and like I said, it's been ongoing and it still is ongoing. So I still have strange things that I can't explain. And so I'm, I'm looking for answers. And that's a part of this conference. It's a lot of people sinking. A lot of fellow experiencers are going to be there. And um, I hope somehow we can come up with a methodology of a, maybe gaining some answers just from each other, if, from nowhere else, from not from mainstream science hasn't helped us out a bit. So <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of people looking for answers. Definitely so. And like you said, this is going to be a great place for that because it brings, you know, not only paranormal experiencers and UFOs, but all types of different uh, strange phenomenon that you can't explain. You know, like you said, Bigfoot, um, all these things that I think are a lot more connected than many people realize. I've had many contactees and experiencers on my show um, that have had multiple, not only paranormal experiences, but contact or abduction or UFO experiences um, at the same time, you know, during these times in their lives, it seems that there's a profound connection between these. Um, is that something that you, you would agree with, that there's a, a really big connection with the paranormal and ufology and even Bigfoot, some of these, you know, stranger occurrences? I, I tend to agree because it's all about it's also unreal at times, but it's also like one Bigfoot occasion <laughs> when the Bigfoot ran across the road in front of me and basically just went into the forest and was gone. And he, he should have been visible. He was, he was huge. He was very tall. He should have still been visible. There were no leaves on the trees. And it was just like he got behind a tree trunk and was suddenly gone. It was like, I can't explain it. I, I, I can't fathom that he could have hidden behind that narrow skinny tree trunk, but somehow because it temporarily blocked my view. I mean, I have no explanation. I, I so much of it is inexplicable. It's just, it's bizarre. I mean, you can't, if you're rational and you're logical and you're a scientist, it's, it's unfathomable. Some of it. <laughs> and that's why it's so disturbing because for a long time you think you're crazy. And, you know, you finally decide, no, there's enough people out there that have similar experiences that aren't crazy. And, you know, I'm a functional human being in society, so I don't think I'm crazy. But for a long time, you're kind of in that in that spot. So, um, well, know. lately, it seems like it's, you know, becoming more mainstream and acceptable, especially because of our own government, Pentagon, the mainstream media talking about UFOs lately, uh, saying, yeah, they exist. They're real. Um, do you think that that's gotten more people to be a little bit more accepting of the subject? I think so. Um, when you have credible scientists and credible experts 
um, in the field and then like astronomers and um, there's been a lot of even physicists, you know, quantum physics <laughs> has kind of opened up a lot of options there as to multidimensional aspects of being and things like that. And so, you know, like I said, I question the very nature of reality at this point, because even though we utilize what we see as a consensual reality, you know, you and I agree that, you know, this is that, and, you know, we agree what a table is, we agree what red is, that sort of thing. But, you know, it makes you question that very aspect of your own being as to, you know, if you were able to perceive differently, would you truly see a different reality? And I suspect we could. Uh, cats see a different reality than what we see. Dogs see a different reality than what we see. So why should we assume that our reality is the best or the only? Uh, it's not. So Now, with your experiences, would you say the majority of them have been positive experiences or a mix of both? What would you, would you say? A lot of it's, you know, the retrospectoscope, the, the hindsight. It's very positive. But at the time, when you're struggling to be, you know, a preteen and then a teen, and you're going through all this stuff that <laughs> the other kids aren't having to go through, um, it can be pretty daunting. And to to try to navigate all that, you know, as a young adult and then an adult, and you know, keep going in the mundane and the and the real world, quote unquote, you know, it, it's daunting. Um, so I would say at the time <laughs> it was. I mean, when you when you wake up from a t- experience of missing time and you have no idea what just happened, um, and you ha- still have to drive home, <laughs> and you don't quite know where you're at, then it's, it, you know, it's a very scary experience. I mean, I can look back on it now and laugh, but at the time it was disturbing. It was very disturbing. So I think retrospectively, it's made me a very different person than I otherwise would have been. Um, I see deeper into to topics than I would have probably if I hadn't had these experiences. And so it makes me think and it opens up a lot of avenues of thought that I probably wouldn't have had if I hadn't had these experiences. Um, now, do you find it strange at all that they are coming out with all this uh, type of disclosure, kind of slow drip disclosure right now? You know, it kind of really started in 2017 after that big New York Times article, but really in 2020, it, it, it amped up, um, you know, along with the, the pandemic, we got this UFO mania. So it's, I find it a little strange. I, I don't always, you know, I really don't trust the information coming out of our own government, but that's just me. I'd like to get your thoughts. What do you think? Why do you think now all of a sudden is the big push for UFO disclosure? I suspect as with everything else, there's not much choice that it's it's either going to happen and it's going to be controlled through them or the narrative is going to be controlled through another avenue. That's my suspicion, but I have no idea. Like everything else, I don't, I, I'm clueless. I just, you that's have to, a, but that's a good suspicion because I think I might agree with that. Yeah, you just have to speculate and see where, where it pans out. So. Definitely. Well, we, we sure do live in interesting times and it's going to be awesome to meet you at the conference and hear your presentation. Now, between now and then for people that would like to find out more about you and your experiences, is there any um, social media website or anything that people can go to? I'm a total introvert. I just total don't. Introvert. <laughs> so you'll be uh, hanging it all out at the conference. That'll be great. Yeah. It's uh, I've written a chapter for an upcoming book um, 
in a, the book is called A Greater Reality, The New Paradigm uh, of Consciousness and the Paranormal and the Contact Modalities. And the name of my chapter is The Experiencer's Closet, because that's what I'm doing is I'm coming out of a big closet. Um, a lot of my colleagues don't know about any of this. <laughs> Just friend, family, my poor husband. You know, so it's it's a well. It's that's great because we do need more people like you to come out and share your experiences. Because me personally, I think that is the best way to learn about this phenomenon right now, because the science has let us down. Like you said, um, a lot of the uh, more woo-woo researchers who just want to, you know, they say they can communicate with them at any time and this is the direct answer. I don't think that's the right way either. I think we need to meet somewhere in between, bring, you know, the, the nuts and bolts researchers and the consciousness researchers together, like we're doing at this conference. And maybe we could learn, you know, a lot more. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your stories and, and presentation there. I'm looking forward to being there. I think it'll be fun meeting everyone. Well, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Melinda, for coming on. And we will see you in Laughlin and we'll see all of you. This year's Laughlin UFO Mega Conference is going to feature over 36 scientists, researchers, and contactees. They're going to be presenting incredible disclosures over seven days. You can now register for the full week, for half a week, or even by the day or session. And not only is there going to be over 36 amazing presentations, you're going to get a Skywatch, meet and greets, and exclusive film screenings. And there's always going to be only one presentation at a time, so you don't have to miss anything. And did I mention that there's no longer any mask mandates in Nevada? So you can now enjoy this amazing seven-day conference mask-free. Just go to their website, LaughlinUFOMegaConference.com, and register now. Last year's conference was absolutely amazing. This year's is going to be even better. So join us for an incredible seven days of education and disclosure at the Laughlin UFO Mega Conference. Whatever business you're in, growth isn't just about getting bigger. At ADP, we believe it's about getting stronger by turning data into insights so you can build teams that work as teams. By using our AI technology to help catch payroll errors before their errors. And by keeping ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. ADP helps businesses like yours grow stronger every day. ADP, HR talent, time, and payroll. With the powerful combination of Michelin X1 tires and the Michelin Energy Guard aerodynamic solution on your truck, you can save 17 gallons every 1,000 miles. Go to business.michelinman.com slash fuel saver for details. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.